Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Right now it's Tuesday, and on the line with us is the old, I can't say enough, old about the history buff, Dr. History. Good morning. Good morning, Zeb. How you doing today? I'm good. Um, I have got a book that I latched on to that when we finally get back together in the same studio again, you are going to drool over all the Western stories. It's about 600 pages worth. Well, that's great. I might could use some of those on the, on the show. That's so why I mentioned it. <laughs> okay. What are we talking about today, old buddy? Well, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, freight wagons, the freighters. Okay. Okay. So I, I've got a story here that was a, an interview that took place in 1933, and the fellow that was introduced, his name was Long-Haired Charlie Zabel. Are you kidding? Now that brings us... That rings a bell, doesn't it? Oh, that's a good play on words. That is, that is. So this is his interview, and so most of what I'm going to be saying is what came from that interview. Now, among those who contributed most towards the building of the West, these early freighters, they deserve a big credit. Uh, it was they who carried the supplies and the necessities of life to the outposts of civilization. I mean, you know, clothing, food, tools, uh, heavy machinery. And these were taken hundreds of miles across some pretty, <clears throat> some pretty rough uh, territory, across streams and rivers and through Indian country. And, uh, you know, there was uh, not a lot of uh, law back then, so you were kind of on your own. Now, one of the last of the Overland freighters whose ox teams traveled the Fort Pierre Deadwood Trail in the 1870s and 80s, uh, this guy actually in 1933 still lived in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Mm. You've heard of that place, right? Many, many times been there. Okay. So his name is Charlie Zabel, Z-A-B-E-L. Well, he went west in 1877, seeking adventure like thousands of other young men of that time. And some became discouraged and turned back, but good old long-haired Charlie, as Charlie, as they called him, he kept on. But uh, after the discovery of gold in the Black Hills, immigrants flocked there uh, in all manner of ways. Some became quite poverty-stricken. Stricken. Uh, Yankton was the capital of Dakota Territory in 1877, and that was the end of the railroad and kind of the jumping-off place for everybody and anybody, uh, as Charlie puts it. And here he says, quote, Here I saw all kinds of outfits headed west, some ox teams, some one mule or a mule and a cow hitched together, and some walking, but everybody hoped to pick up gold in big chunks. They thought it would just be sitting there for the picking. Mm -hmm. And some had printed on their wagons, Black Hills are bust, and uh, some of them definitely busted. Now, he goes on, he says, At Yankton, I got my first view of the real West. It was so vast, it bewildered me. I was lucky to get a job as night herder with a freighter going up the Missouri as far as Fort Pierre. And he describes it you know, with ducks and geese and rabbits and wolves and coyotes and deer, every, all kinds of wildlife. 
And he says, sometimes we see a band of antelope. But uh, he said, I was anxious to see a buffalo, but they told me uh, all the large herds had been killed off in this region, and I later saw where a whole herd had been shot. Now, uh, there's a guy by the name of Felix LeBlanc who took me on, he said, a good-hearted man. He had been a trapping partner of Jim Bridger and can tell the most hair-raising stories of their troubles with the Indians. And he said he could also throw a knife or a hatchet uh, as straight as anybody else could shoot. So I'm still quoting from his interview. It says, uh, Our oxen knocked over some Indian burial rocks by rubbing against them, and nothing makes an Indian more angry. In a few days, they caught up with us and were all around camp, riding back and forth and jabbering a lot uh, of talk that nobody could understand except Felix. Well, he took some knives and tobacco and other things and walked, as he said, unconcernedly out among those Indians, all with their spears and their shields to show how brave they were. And he talked with their chief, and whatever he said must have been good, uh, because they all rode away after that. So now, to give an idea of the freighting business as it was in the 70s, I will describe one of the big outfits, of which there were scores. Three wagons were coupled together, and ten yoke of oxen pulled them. The first was the lead wagon, and it carried about 7,000 pounds load. Uh, the swing wagon was next with a 5,000-pound load, and the trail wagon last with 3,000 pounds. And he said this was called a team, and there were usually ten teams to a train. Now he goes on, he says, on the trail we spread out so that each team had fresh ground to roll on, and even with the four-and-a-half-inch tires that cut in uh, hub deep in wet weather from Fort Pierre to the Cheyenne River was all, as he says, gumbo, and when mixed with long grass, stuck to the wheels in wads. Wow. Now, Jeff, I can't hear you very good, so if you have something, I just jump right in. Yeah, I want to jump in just in, and ask you a question here real quick. You said that uh, they had uh, 10 teams of oxen pulling these three wagons. So you're talking about 20 oxen, but you also said that the terrain that they went through was uh, sometimes hub deep on the, on the hubs of the wheels of the uh, wagons. How in the world did even all those oxen pull that uh, amount of weight through that kind of condition? Well, that's when they had to hook up another set of 10 oxen, uh, sometimes two or three teams, to pull wagons through. Oh, my. So there were, there were actually the three wagons uh, coupled together would have 10 yoke or 20 oxen, and in the whole group, uh, there was maybe 10, so that would be like 200 oxen. Oh, my. For the whole uh, 10 teams of three. Does that does that make more sense? It does. You need a little bit more oxen power. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he said, we made 12 to 15 miles a day in good weather and sometimes five miles in bad going, but we always got through. And he says, at times, we had to uncouple and take one wagon at a time through through a bad stretch or put on more oxen, which I just mentioned, we forded all the streams from Fort Pierre to Deadwood after crossing the Missouri by ferry. The Cheyenne was the widest river, but not often deep enough to bother us. Now he goes on, he says, at night we camped at some good water hole or stream. Uh, the wagons were corralled in a circle and cattle driven out to graze. 
Now, he says, my job was to keep them from getting lost or killed by wolves or stampeding and to watch things generally. He says, I always had about 200 oxen to watch all night. And just before dawn, I roused them so they could graze some uh, before we got started. Uh, so he says, then I rode to camp and would sing out, quote, roll out, roll out, bulls on the corral. <laughs> Hmm. That's what he would sing out, which would bring the boys out of their blankets. The cattle were driven in then and yoked up, and the drivers cracked their long whips as we pulled out one by one, forming a long line stretching across the prairie. And well, just imagine, you know, 10, well, it'd be 30 wagons with 200 oxen. You know, let me jump in and let me jump in. Then stopped for breakfast and stayed in camp until nearly night as the oxen could not stand the heat very well. The night drive lasted until almost dark, and sometimes we drove by moonlight. But after that, I crawled out of the wagon where I slept and went to work. Now he says there, was always, there always was good grass for the cattle, except in the fall when fires burned off uh, large areas. I remember once we, had, we made a 20-mile drive through a stretch, and this was hard on the cattle, too. This was where we had an advantage over the horse or mule outfits as they carried grain along, and this cut down on what they could carry. Even though they were slow, oxen were the best means of transportation for freight in that country. Now, he says the old freighting trail uh, went straight west from Fort Pierre to the Black Hills, and he talks about the spruce and the pine that covered, uh, you know, just beautiful area out there, and he said, this country still belonged to the Indians, though we were supposed to have a right-of-way a mile wide. That didn't stop some roving band from taking a shot at us once in a while just for fun. And he said, we were well-armed, and they didn't bother us, but they never missed taking an immigrant outfit with good horses. In fact, he says, we had met a man here who had been attacked and his horses run off. They had riddled his wagon with box with bullets. But he had been sleeping some distance away, and they missed him. Whether it was Indians or white rustlers with war bonnets, nobody knows. He says, I do not know there were a lot. He says, I do know there were a lot of white men out there that were ten times worse than the Indians and often took their disguise to cover what they were doing. There were plenty of honest, square shooting men in the West, and if you were there that kind, you didn't have any problems. So he goes on, he says, on their first trip, a hard thunderstorm came up one night. The oxen started to drift with it first and then to run. It was so dark I couldn't see my horse's head, and it seemed certain that there was no facing that wind and rain, but we stayed with the herd just the same. When daylight came, I started rounding up what I could of them and soon came to a stream which was called Bad River. He says, I saw a teepee. There was only one, so I hailed it. An old Indian came out, and by using uh, the few Indian words I had learned, along with a lot of swinging my arms, I made him understand what I wanted. Well, he led me to a ridge where you could see 10 or 15 miles, and most of the oxen were in sight, just grazing. He then motioned me to come to his camp and offered me some kind of stew he was cooking. He said it smelled good to me as I was about famished. After the meal... He brought in a fresh coyote hide and pointed first to it and then to the stew. Oh. That's what I'd been eating. Oh, boy. The boys helped uh, round up the rest of the cattle, but they couldn't see why I didn't eat well that day. I believe now that old Indian has some other meat there 
and was only playing a joke on me. Let me, uh, let me, can you hear me, Doc? Hold on just a second. I got to ask you a question. Uh, let me, let me ask you this. I know we've got a little bit of a delay and you're having trouble hearing, but bear with me just a second. When you talk about these oxen trains and they were not uh, known and never have been known as speed animals, how many miles a day could those oxen train? How far could they go? Usually anywhere from 5 to maybe 15 miles in a day. I see. Maybe even 20 if they were really doing good. So, uh, yeah, yeah, they were they were slow. But And he says, uh, he goes on, he says, we were two months making that trip and had to kill game constantly or we would have been out of provisions. And antelope made a good breakfast, and they were often mixed in with the cattle in the morning, which afforded us a great concealment. There was hardly a time all day when game or other wildlife was not visible. Now, he says the only way of getting into Deadwood with big outfits was from the north across the Centennial Prairie and through a place called Crook City. And he said if two-legged crooks were meant, it was rightly named. He says it was here that boys sometimes spent their money after being paid off. They unloaded the wagons first and then loaded themselves up with all kinds of red eye. And it wasn't long before anything was liable to happen, and usually did. Uh, the sky was the limit in these towns. And he says on Centennial Prairie, some hide hunters had rounded up a herd of a 1,000 buffalo, killed all of them. The carcasses were so close together that you could jump from one to another for a quarter of a mile, and half of the hides were wasted because it froze up before they could harvest them. Mm, and he shame. said it was a useless slaughter. He said it was bad. Mm. But he said, we had to unload our wagons and get back to Centennial Prairie before night because there was no feed for the cattle uh, anywhere near. They dressed up and then head back. And he says, some days the streets of Dead would be crowded with miners coming in for supplies, and in a day or two they would be scattered. If one did get a good pile of pans of gold, uh, there were chances they'd probably lose it. They'd get killed or scalped and be robbed. But he said, uh, there was a guy by the name of Preacher Smith who was killed. He said, a friend of mine knew him and had often told him not to travel from camp to camp alone with money on him. He used to preach the gospel on the streets in saloons, gambling houses, dance halls, or wherever he could get an audience. The story goes that Calamity Jane took pity on him as he was being jived, he said, by some men in a saloon. And snatching off the big hat she wore, she shouted, Come on, boys, shell out, give the sky pilot a lift. Well, a good-sized stake was gathered in both cash and gold dust, but the next day he was found in Boulder Canyon, dead, with his Bible lying on his chest, and the money was gone. Mm. Now, I go... You know, that town of Deadwood and all of the historical characters that used to go into there or live there, wow, that must have been a den of iniquity. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes on to say that uh, uh, the year before had been a stirring win in Black Hills. Wild Bill Hickok had come in. Uh, you know, there's Buffalo Bill had been in there. He said he saw uh, Buffalo Bill Cody... General Sheridan and Deadwood. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, a lot of people were in there. Uh, but he said the year of 78 was when the big boom started. Uh, it wasn't long before we pulled out for the Black Hills, and our new wagons looked as bad as the old ones, but we ran almost in constant rain. Uh, he said that some of the Cheyennes were on the warpath. Uh, 
uh, and there have been a number of people killed. Um, but there's one story, I, I know we're getting short on time here, but he, he got to a point where he says, I now owned a team of my own, which was worth about $1,500, that still traveled with a guy by the name of Dougherty. He had bought 60 head of Texas Longhorns to use in place of oxen because they traveled faster. They were wild as deer and ugly. Each one had to be snubbed to a wagon wheel before we could get a yoke on him. <laughs> and they would fight like tigers all the time. Lord, how those wild steers could buck and fight. I would rather break two broncos than any one of them any time. They had come from the pear thickets and jungles of South Texas and had never seen a rope but once or twice. So he said we put two yokes of these steers in the middle of a team and drove around in a circle and finally had them tame enough to travel. Now, I can't imagine that, but... So, one kind of last story here. He said, to show, to show some of the unexpected hazards we often met with, I will describe one close call we had in crossing the Cheyenne one hot July day in 82. I had two teams now, and we're going back empty. The buffalo flies were biting the cattle until the blood showed through the hair. After breakfast, we went swimming, and then we would drive the teams across and take our time, allowing the cattle to cool off also. They would switch their tails in the water and over their backs, chasing off the flies, and it was hard to keep them moving at all. As I rode along beside them, it appeared the river was deeper than usual, and then it dawned on me that it was rising rapidly. Mm. The water was soon over their backs, and they were having to swim. There had been a cloud burst up above somewhere, and we were getting the result. Well, he goes on, all I had in the world was tied up to these two teams, and when the wagons started slewing around in the current, I thought I was ruined. My horse was swimming, too, and all I could do was to shout at my lead cattle, uh, Kid and Rattler, the two cattle. They were smart animals, and they pulled ahead for all they were worth. My driver was hanging on the back of one ox and was just able to keep his head above water. All the wagons had tipped over, and the box with our bedding and provisions had floated away. My herder, a young fellow named Ross Waters, had been in that wagon and had jumped out just as it tipped. I thought, sure, he would be caught under the, tr under the trucks and killed, but when the wheels came up uh, out of the water, there he was hanging on, and spinning around in the air. So he was hanging on to a wagon wheel. Oh, my. The oxen finally reached shore, and we snaked the wagon along as far as we could on the bank. It took a week to repair all the damage to the wagons. So, anyway, that was one of his adventures, and he said, freighting continued profitable until 1886 when we heard the Northwest Railroad was coming to the Black Hills by way of Valentine, Nebraska, and he says, I knew then our days were numbered. Absolutely. So that's kind of the story uh, of this uh, freighter named uh, Long-Haired Charlie Isabel. Oh, my goodness sakes. You know, I really appreciate it. I know this is a little difficult to do this program with you in one area, me in the other, but I certainly appreciate your effort, and I love that story. Uh, but I'll look forward to next week, and maybe it won't be too much longer before we can get in the same studio and do things like we used to, Dr. History. Thank you for an outstanding story this morning. 
You bet. We'll see you next week, Zeb. All right, my dear friend. Take care. Dr. History on the program with us this morning from an undisclosed location. No, he's at his house. And uh, we certainly appreciate that segment talking about the freighters of the Old West. Thank you very much.